This is David Diaz, and you're watching the TV Writer Podcast. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web. And by Final Draft Script Writing Software, the entertainment industry standard for script writing worldwide. My name is Gray Jones, and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast, partner of Script Magazine, episode 36 for Thursday, October 6th, 2011. Well, today I'm so excited to bring you an interview that I had with animation writer, story editor, creative producer, David Diaz. Now, the reason I'm so excited on this episode is because Dave is a great friend of mine. Uh, we actually went to school together at York University in the early 90s and have kept in touch. Actually, he lives just a few blocks away from me. And, uh, and so I'm really, really excited to have him on. And he's written on a pile of stuff. I mean, some, some shows you might recognize, Max and Ruby. Um, he's written on Franklin, Caillou. Actually, let me just read a whole bunch. Berenstein Bears, uh, Blazing Dragons, Sticking Around, Anatoly, Dumb Bunnies, Blasters Universe, M- uh, Metabots, George and Martha, um, Beyblade, Roly Poly Oli, George Shrinks, Jacob Tutu, Chili Beach, um, Cyber Chase, Mischief City. He's written on uh, ones that you might know if you're in Canada, the Doodle Bops, and as well, uh, Raspberry Jazzberry Jam, and the Cat in the Hat knows a lot about that. A whole pile of stuff. Magi Nation, Stella and Sam, Scaredy Squirrel, uh, just a pile, pile, pile. And he does work here in Toronto. Um, it is a big uh, industry in Canada. Uh, as you might know, there's, a, there's quite a bit of animation that's done in Canada, in particular in Toronto. And he's got a lot to say about not just Toronto, but the animation field in general, how you might want to break into it, and um, all the ins and outs. So that's coming up shortly. And uh, a couple of things I do want to mention. One is that uh, you'll notice that this podcast is being released on Thursday, um, at least for the next uh, four, five, six months, while Chuck is in season NBC's Chuck. Of course, I do a podcast for that at chuckpodcast.com. Um, in order to make the schedules work, I'm going to be shifting the TV Writer podcast releases to Thursdays. Uh, so the Chuck podcast will be released usually on Mondays and the TV Writer podcast on Thursdays. So hopefully that uh, doesn't inconvenience you. They'll, they'll still be usually one per week. You can get them, of course, at the tvwriterpodcast.com site. You can get them at blip.tv slash tvwriterpodcast. And that actually is the, the place that you go if you want to see them in the highest resolution. Um, they are a little higher resolution on the blip.tv site. And as well, you can get them on iTunes. Just search for TV Writer Podcast. And uh, there are a lot of helpful resources at tvwriterpodcast.com. Make sure you go check out that site for web resources. There's a lot of web links that you can click and, and get to a pile of different things, including a massive script database with tons of free scripts. There's also a Twitter database with almost 900 writers on Twitter that you can follow. And lots of other things on the site. Uh, one thing I do want to mention is that you may have noticed that Amazon.com released new Kindles in the last week. And I think they're awesome. Um, I know that there's going to be a lot of them under Christmas trees this Christmas. And I do want to remind you that uh, any Amazon purchase, including Kindles and Kindle ebooks, 
um, can support the podcast. And I invite you if, you, if you're thinking about buying these as gifts or for yourself in the coming months, that you do go to tvwriterpodcast.com first, click on the store link, and, uh, and when you go to the store, there's a link that takes you to the Amazon.com site. But as long as you order within that session, every single thing that you order, including Kindles and eBooks, can help the podcast with, with a little percentage. So please do consider that. Uh, as well, you can follow a Canadian link. If you, uh, Unfortunately, not all of the Kindles are available in Canada, but some of them are. And in uh, any Amazon.ca purchase can also help to support the podcast. And I ask that you please consider doing that. Uh, because we definitely do need your help. But right now we are moving on to my interview with animation writer David Diaz. Enjoy. This is Gray, and I'm here with animation writer, story editor, creative producer, and good friend David Diaz. How are you doing, Dave? I'm good, Gray. Good to talk to you. Yep. Um, and of course, I'll, I'll, I'll have mentioned it in the introduction, but uh, we go way, way back to York University and, uh, and lots in between. Um, and it's great to actually have a friend of mine on the podcast. Yeah, I, actually, you live a couple blocks away from me, so that's pretty cool too. Yeah, five minutes away, I think, actually. So this is like the longest connection. I think this uh, this Skype is is going through miles and miles of cable. Meanwhile, I could just walk over there and shout in your window. I think. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so anyway, so I'm really grateful you could be on the podcast. We've had a few animated um, writers uh, talking, and uh, some have talked about. The, the sort of the bigger shows like the Cleveland show and, and, uh, and shows like that. One, one writer for Family Guy was on. And then, uh, you know, Steve, uh, Stephen Darren set, uh, yes. was on as well. But, uh, I know you had mentioned in, uh, when you were on the TV writer chat a few weeks ago that, um, that animation represents, what did you say? Something like 20 or 19% of the writers guild. And the writers guild in Canada specifically, it was about 18% of all the productions that writers got paid for under the writers guild banner were animation, which was actually a pretty big number. I, I thought it would be somewhere maybe closer to 10, 12, 15%, but uh, it's um, it's provided a lot of work up here. Um, I think it's probably the nature of the co-productions that Canada is just a hot spot. Well, I'd, I'd be curious to, to, to know what the percentage is in the States, but I, I know it's not that small. I mean, say it's, it's one out of every five writers in Canada. Even, even if it was one out of every 10 writers in the States, I don't think that we see 10% of the screenwriting resources for a- animation. Um, and so that's why I'm, I'm really glad to have you on and, and, uh, and have other animation writers on the podcast so that we can learn about this area that obviously there's a lot of work there. There is. In fact, it's become just, a, I think it's probably best described as a stable part of, um, of the industry in terms of that there's just the amount of productions that are going on has been pretty level over the last like 15 years since I've been, I've been I, 13 years, I think, has been how long I've been writing. But there's been a pretty high number of production. It's been pretty consistent. You know, drama has flagged up here for a period of time, and, and sitcoms were almost non-existent for a period of time. But animation has remained pretty steady as a whole, as a percentage of the work. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I think that um, adults go through more trends, perhaps. Um, like, we might be into dramas for a while, then we're into reality for a while. But kids always want animation. <laughs> yeah, they. Th- that's uh, pretty much a given. Now I have a almost three-year-old myself and it's uh it's a staple <laughs> i think it's you know what there's just something universal about it and if it's done properly adults enjoy it as well like there's there's genres that are dedicated strictly towards adult viewing but there's a gigantic range of shows that sort of fall anywhere from like pre-preschool all the way up to teens and then into the adult genre so there's something very universal in that anybody can turn on and find some cartoon that suits their tastes and their their leanings 
Yeah, well, and the, and the interesting, interesting thing that I find is I know when, when we were growing up, um, there was Saturday morning cartoons, which were all for kids. Yeah. And there, there were sort of the afternoon, just after school kind of uh, cartoons, which were again were maybe into the early teens, like Transformers. But yeah. there wasn't a lot of animation all day long. Um, and there wasn't a lot of animation that was above the sort of preteen level. And now it seems, I mean, you, you can literally turn on channels that have animation 24 seven and you, you can turn on channels that have animation that's clearly not for kids. Oh yeah. Well, you know what it is? It's the, the proliferation of it. I, I, I don't claim to be an animation scholar in terms of the history of its development, but having lived, you know, being a kid in the seventies and watching that stuff, it was really, really special when it came on. I mean, everybody has their memories of like watching the Saturday morning cartoons mm. and then, uh, and then even afternoons, it just seemed like it was more sophisticated because it was, you know, it was built for older kids coming home from school, you know, it's, it really was uh, a big deal. And what happened, I guess, is that with all these proliferation of channels and stuff, is in addition to you could watch you know Cartoon Network and see it all day long, or Disney had a big huge block and and Nick and all these channels, is that there was just a desire for it. Like it's ultimately you don't see that many uh, shows of a genre out there unless people are clamoring for it. And I think as a whole, it's sort of tapered off in terms of like it's almost reaching a saturation point where it's like eventually you start seeing enough of a type of show like a preschool kid show and stuff and people become a lot more discerning about it because it's like okay another preschool kid show okay what's it new like what's new for me here to watch in this <laughs> you know and which is as it should be because you shouldn't treat it indiscriminately mm-hmm. like i think when you watch the stuff from the 70s a lot of it doesn't stand up because it was really maligned it was just people that were working in it really didn't treat it with the respect that it deserved mm-hmm. and so especially the writing side of it is just like it's hack central right when you're when you're watching it and it's a shame you know and actually i mean the animation quality is terrible too because animation was such a painstaking process to do and tv budgets just didn't accommodate anything good so you'd get like the really crappy spider-man sort of stuff you know which (laughs) has its own charm but as a whole it's the technique was terrible you know but people ate it up because it was just so novel Mm -hmm. to see cartoons on tv it was just novel yeah well that well that that begs the question um i and i know because uh, I, I I worked in in at Nine Story at a company that uh, that did pro- predominantly animation and they had were just starting into live action and I was um, working on the live action part of it but I know that there it still takes a lot of people to put together an animated show and it takes a lot of time to put together an animated show but at the same time I know that the technology has to have helped the process so tell me a little bit about um like say versus Spider Man days versus now. Um, what, uh, what that technology shift has brought. Well, it's funny because, um, I think I can actually speak with some, uh, legitimacy because when I, before I started writing, I was a picture editor, well, Mm -hmm. at least assistant picture editor, sort of as about as far as I got, but that was my interest stream going through university is, you know, I wanted to be a big filmmaker like Lucas Spielberg, that generation, you know, but I wanted an actual job that paid me something. So I thought I need a skill that I can market. And I got into editing and I segued into editing at least an animation through doing post for a Canadian film center feature that was posting at deluxe, uh, downtown Toronto. And there was a, an editor who worked at Nelvana, the big animation company, and she was assisting on a feature there. And that's how I got the link into, to Nelvana. And when I first started there, half the show still originated on 35 millimeters. So, wow. you know, they had steambacks and flatbeds and, and that kind of stuff there. And they needed assistance to be able to sync quote unquote up the, the footage, right. Which is a different process than in live action because 
it's slates, but it's all, you know, it's based on the mouth movements and all this kind of stuff. So it was literally just, it's not a hard sync. You're kind of looking it up and it's like, okay, one frame off seems a little weird. It's, it's close enough. Cause sometimes the animation would be bad and you mm-hmm. couldn't tell if it was in sync or not. This would be the closest you could get. Wow. But, um, you know, and then they just didn't have the kind of budget or time to get the kind of reshoots that they needed. So, you know, I worked on the first show I ever worked on was free Willy, the cartoon. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Which I think had about 12 episodes on ABC back in 19, now this is dating me back in like 1995. Yeah. And, uh, it had this big eco theme, which was kind of noble, but the whale talked, right. And whenever he talked at this gigantic mouth, that was just, <laughs> it was actually really distracting to watch because he'd be talking to this kid and there'd be like, Oh, all you can see is this gigantic whale tongue talking. But, um, there'd be some pretty bad animation mistakes and there's only so much that they could fix because they get their take ones that they'd call them. And then they'd maybe have enough time to call a handful or a dozen reshoots. And it was always the major, major ones. And that's what they would fix. So, mm-hmm. you know, as time sort of went on, like, I guess it's all budget, right? If you've got enough of a budget and you can be like the Simpsons and you can get like a million reshoots and reshoot the, rewrite the entire script if you need to, as you go to make it funnier, to make it more interesting then great. But for regular tv animation this is sort of what you had it's it's you maybe get one set of reshoots and that's it but as more and more stuff went digital it was just interesting to see the process because it was like it would be in-house digital at least at novana they would be doing a whole bunch of stuff digitally in-house and it was fantastic looking animation but it got to the point where i think it was just prohibitive from a a cost perspective like they did ink and paint and all that kind of stuff digitally in-house on some shows and they just you know I wasn't privy to the producing aspect of it, but if the show didn't come back later, you heard rumblings. It's like, well, it just was, it was costing too much, you know? Mm. So I think that's, that's sort of, I think when they started doing like a lot of the co-productions things were because it was like companies, even when you're the size of a Nelvana or whatever. And if, if some shows are getting too prohibitive, you have to look for other models to do it. And then, so you would look around at other countries and say, Hey, you like this idea, let's team up and you know, half, you take half the budget, I take half the budget, you take half the workload and we'll do the other half. And, you know, that kind of thing. But in terms of the technical side of it, it's just been really, really interesting because depending on the production, you might farm out all the in-house to somebody else, you mm-hmm. know? So even though it's cheaper to do it digitally, you still might have it done in France or in, in India or Australia or any of the other number of countries, Brazil's another big co-production. Uh, Korea. Korea, yeah. You know, whatever is the cheapest to get it done, but still have it look fairly decent. I think there's a standard now that people generally have to adhere to at least in terms of animation quality for some of the bigger networks and bigger production companies that which is good you don't get a certain you don't get below a certain level of quality right mm-hmm. which is you know actually as a writing perspective it's good to see stuff look good yeah very it's been a very very interesting to see the transition mm-hmm. from the digital over the years so you you were editing um or assistant editing at nelvana which is one of the one of the bigger um animation companies in in canada and uh and so what was the point that you said, I want to write for, for animation? I actually got really lucky. They had such a big slate at one point. Like they were really pushing, they were growing at an exponential rate and they were really pushing more and more deals with some of these networks to get like more series done. And I think the second year I was there when I was working in post, they got this mammoth deal with CBS to do like six half hours. It was almost like the first instance of, a company sort of programming their entire morning block for a, a network. Hmm. And um, so Nelvana all of a sudden has to produce these six half-hour series. And so um, uh, Patrick Lubert, the, the owner of the company, decided he wanted to have uh, an in-house writing staff. And I think over the years they had had a number of sort of small writing staffs on a production-by-production production basis. 
but they just wanted to have a bigger staff. He was he was really big into the uh, the writing part of it. So um, I there was just a call put out. It wasn't even like official. Like it wasn't like posters put on the wall saying, "Hey, you want to be a writer? Come and apply." It was like through, almost through the grapevine from producers. And I had just started writing one or two scripts just as a, as an aside. Like I, I worked on these shows and posts and thought, how do these things get written? Like I went to film school. I wanted to write and direct. Who writes this stuff? Mm-hmm. And I looked through the scripts and I had access to storyboards and stuff all the time. And I just – I had a connection to, uh, to one of the story editors and I'd written one script. It got bought. And so that's just that one script got me the interview to be on staff for this junior writing program. And then I got I got the gig. So there were four of us that got hired that that first year. And that first year turned into six years. Wow. Being on staff. Yeah. They just kept growing for a period of time. And then it kind of got tougher. Like they didn't have the same level of productions and then it got harder and harder. It just, it got to the point where I think Novana just finally said, look, we don't need, it's a luxury to have this many writers on staff. No animation company in the right mind generally keeps that many writers on staff. Like there was probably about 10 of us, I think at one point. Mm. Um, and, and, and so let's talk about that a bit because um, in, in scripted television, it's typically almost always written by a writing staff. There's a writing room where you gather around a table and, and somebody's writing on a, on a whiteboard and, and there's an assistant <laughs> who's typing it up and, and you see it on a HDTV or something. It, an, animation is not, generally not that way. Um, tell, tell me about how animation usually is written. You're usually getting two writers, essentially, right? You get the head writer or story editor and then you get the freelance writer. So... In some shows, that's literally all you have in terms of a collaboration is two, right, in terms of brainstorming. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's strictly a budgetary thing. You know, productions of this nature don't have the kind of money to hire writers on a regular basis to brainstorm in the room. Although some of them do tend to, they try to get these sort of writer summits going where what they'll do is they'll pay writers for their time to be in a room for like a day or two days or however many days they they afford. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually some sort of guarantee or uh, that a writer will get a script or two out of it, right? Because you don't want writers to like pitch a whole bunch of ideas and say, thanks for your time. And then everybody else takes the ideas and writes them up. It doesn't <laughs> work that way. Yeah. You know, so um, yeah, but that way they can get the, the idea of a room and the, the productivity of a room, but not necessarily have to pay them for an entire season. Mm. To be there. But at the very minimum, it's always like, you know, a show gets bought, whether it's the creator of the show writes it or, or another writer comes up with the idea for the show. And then they then the story editor has to say, OK, how many of these am I going to write myself? Which is usually only a certain number because schedule wise, there's no way that they help, they'll have time to write all of them themselves. They'll, they'll kill themselves. So they have to say, oh, how many are we going to farm out and how many are we going to farm out? How many writers do we need? Is it the kind of show where writers are going to pitch on it? And if it is, then it's open season. They put out the call to agencies or whoever saying we need writers to pitch on the show who do you have that fits this demographic this genre of show and then you get a bunch of writers and they start pitching you know if it's a, a show where it's just like something that's arcing and there's you know you're not being productive by hiring freelancers pitching stories that have no idea what's really going on in the show then maybe they'll hire a few select writers who aren't in a room but they have they might have the odd meeting just to get up to speed, you know. But it always boils down to just like the the head writer and the freelancer, and mm. they'll communicate. However, and so it's like the the freelancer will pitch something, and the story will say, "Yep, yeah, I like that," and then they get it approved, and the story's greenlit, and then they get a contract, and then they write it, and it's just back and forth. And whether or not the story editor decides like how the note process happens mm. is completely different from production to production, uh, from head writer to head writer. It's um, sometimes they just they filter them, you know, if, if the notes are really bad or whatever it is, then, the, you know, the head writer might just soften it a bit and say, look, we need to take another crack at this. Here's some of the bigger picture 
you know, issues. Other times it's like, yeah, here's the five or six sets of notes that <laughs> completely conflict and are infuriating and may actually offend you personally. Here they are. <laughs> Have fun, you know, and they can't get personal, you know? <laughs> yeah. But I, I think it's pretty fascinating. And actually, because, um, I think the primary audience of the, the podcast is people who are, desiring to break in or perhaps have broken in and and are at the entry level and and want to get forward in their career and uh in scripted writing it's mandated by the, at least the American Writers Guild that that each TV show has at least two freelance scripts per season mm-hmm. but um generally speaking even though that sounds oh that's so promising Usually those two freelance scripts are, are given to somebody who's already working on the show or a cousin or, you know, I mean, it's, it's somebody that they know and it's not just somebody walking in off the street. Oh, but yeah. with animation, you might have, what, 50%, 70% freelance scripts in, in, a, in a given show. Not always, but, but sometimes. Um, and so what would a freelance writer need to be able to pitch? To say, say for instance, Max and Ruby. Let, let's take that as an example. Max and Ruby, yeah, Nine Stories, gem. There, there. It's been an extremely popular show going on their fifth season now. An animated show just doesn't go five seasons unless it's extremely popular. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, w- w- it's funny with a show like that. It's in my experience, it's been. Because I was new to that show when I wrote on it. I, I didn't write on it its first four seasons. I, I wrote on its fifth season. And uh, part of it is I, you know, I had met the story editor before, and she knew my love of the show because I have a, I had a, you know, two year old at the time who liked watching it. It just seemed good timing to potentially be able to write on this. But new writers have broken in on that show specifically. I can say from a, from a, you know, knowing who's written on it. But <clears throat> it seems kind of strange. Like it's in a blunt sort of terms. It's the reason why new writers, at least with animation, don't necessarily break in that easily, at least when a show starts, is because writers like to hire – I mean, they like to hire their friends, of course, right? Because it's, hey, you know, we like working together and stuff like that. But the, the harsh reality is that writers who are known, who are, are experienced – are known quantities, right? So when they hire someone, they say, yeah, I worked with that person before. And yeah, sometimes they deliver good stuff. Sometimes it's iffy, but at least we know we're not going to get anything that's completely off the wall that we Mm. don't know what it is. Right. Which isn't true. Like, you know, sometimes writers just don't get a show. I've gotten, I've not gotten shows many times where it's just, you know, there's just the odd time. You just, you don't quite crack the sensibility, whatever it is. You're not quite in the headspace of that show enough. So it happens to even really experienced writers. But because of that, a lot of new writers are sort of hobbled right from the start in terms of this show starts up, right? A, a new show, whatever it is. And uh, they want to hire the most experienced, the most professional, the most like the longest CVs you've ever seen. They, that's who they want to hire. Generally, what happens is that as a show progresses, the more they have a need for writers, the more they're willing to consider new writers because hmm. uh, it's out of necessity, right? It's like they're not getting enough scripts filled. A guy who's a friend of mine actually now, but I wasn't, you know, I didn't get in these jobs because they weren't, I wasn't the head writer on these shows, but I knew from personal experience, his first two writing credits were on shows that needed stories. They mm-hmm. desperately needed stories because they just got to the point where they were really having trouble getting stories approved. And whether it was the uh, writers not getting it or a lot of times it's producers just being very, very specific and, and picky about what they want. And if they're not getting it, then, you know, it grinds the whole schedule to a halt. And that's kind of a, that's where you start getting into, you know, freaking out territory, right? It's like we need – it's a pipeline. It constantly has to be filled, right? Hmm. It's got to be X number of new scripts every week. 
So when it starts get, reaching that point, that's sort of a sweet spot for like, okay, what do you got? Like who do, who, who, you know, and if, if there's any way to actually be able to time this stuff for new writers, there'd be a lot more new writers working because when a show gets to that point, it's like, who do we have? Like, I just need story ideas, whoever can come in and pitch. And then that's what will happen is that somebody might break in and they, they pitch a bunch of stuff and, you know, it might be rougher around the edges because they're new to that show or new to animation writing, or whatever. But if it's a story they like, you know, head writers know they can work with them. It's like, uh, I'm, I care about the story that's mm. filling the schedule slot. And so they may have to do more rewriting or more note giving or more uh, mentoring, guiding this new writer. But the, the, the prime importance is to fill that slot and get an approved story. And, you know, I, as a head writer on a couple of shows, I got to the point of, you know, where I was entertaining almost anything. Like I couldn't get stories approved myself and wow. the other story editor couldn't get stuff approved. And we had um, this uh, intern in our office working for a period of time, which is kind of a strange, that's another whole story in itself, but she was a really hard worker and stuff like that. She was still in university. And it got to the point where I was asking her, it's like, uh, you want to read this and see this show and see if you've got any ideas? <laughs> you're, just, you're hitting your head against the wall, right? And you just need to get stuff approved. And she didn't get anything approved, uh, unfortunately, at that point. But it, that was the opportunity, you know? Mm. She's actually gone on to be do run on a whole bunch of other stuff so it's worked out pretty well but um that's the tricky thing you know it's like my friend who got into this other thing he just happened to time it just perfectly you know and he was he was an established writer in his own right he had written his own podcast and done all these other things so he he had some experience and he just managed to find the right opportunity but finding that opportunity is just hard you know mm. you never know when a show is going to really need somebody it takes a really open-minded production to accept new writers right from the the start mm. You know, it's kind of fishing around to when a show is in the middle and they're not too close to the end because then they've got all their stories approved. If they're too close to the beginning. They're too picky <laughs> about who they hire, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, so and so let's let's take that as an example. So say uh, Max and Ruby is has gotten the point where nobody can get any any stories approved and you're desperate for for writers. How and then you've got Joe Blow, who's on the street, who wants to be a writer. Um, how does he find out about that opportunity? What does he need to be able to get into the room to pitch? Um, does he need an agent or does he need a spec script or, or what, um, how, how would you bridge that gap? You know what? It's, I, I should say that my, my friend, uh, who got on that show, uh, who wrote on Max Marie as his first produced credit did have an agent, mm -hmm. but it was his first produced credit. So he got his agent through some really good specs that he had written, one of which won some online script contest. I think it was a Canadian script contest rather than the US one, but he he won like for a, a, a spec he'd written for a, this Canadian show called Corner Gas, which was a, hmm. a huge success up here. And that got him an agent along with some of his other writing. So it actually, is, I think it's really encouraging in a way because it's like, it means that you don't, you know, a lot of times some agents won't represent you unless you have a credit, right, or produce script, which almost defeats the purpose of having an agent in some <laughs> yeah. ways, right? But, you know, it's this writer took a chance on him and say, okay, you don't have any produced credits, but I like your stuff, you know? And, and so that agent was who got him in, you know, in terms of uh, knowing cross-section of what was going on in the market at this point. It's like, okay, well, here's Nine Stories doing another season of Action Ruby. You know, let's call him and find out what's going on. You mm -hmm. know? Now, that's that's so, one way, but I've, I've heard you don't necessarily need an agent. So if you didn't have an agent, what was a way that you could, number one, hear about that opportunity, and number, number two, actually get into pitch? Well, hearing about the opportunity is 90% of it. Right. How, how do you how do you have any idea of what's going on with a show? You know, half the time, I don't know what's going on. I have to find my agent to like say, what's this company doing? What's that company doing? Because you're there's no way you can get a whole cross section of the industry. And even agents sometimes don't 
aren't aware of mm. what's going on. So that really is the million dollar question. You know, it, writers hate to find out that it's like, well, it's networking who you know, but really it is in some ways of not who you know, but like knowing just having your finger to the pulse of the industry, right? So reading about deals, like it's, it's uh, what productions are selling, you know, you hear about stuff like MIPCOM's going on right now, right? It's like reading press releases is a huge thing, I think, mm-hmm. in terms of finding out. It's like, well, this company is partnering with this company overseas to produce X, right? And what is X? Is it, is it, has it already been greenlit? Is it about to be greenlit? Like it's, it involves doing a lot of research because if you don't have an agent, you're doing the work of an agent in terms of finding out who's doing what the agent is good. Cause the agent can open the door for you if you don't know anybody, right? Like, cause it's really, somebody has to get that script to somebody or your sample to get in there and get the, or at least get to the story editor just to let them send you some pitches. And that's a hard, hard thing to do. So it's, it's, um, I wish I had a magic formula that I could give out, mm-hmm. but the more you know about the industry that you're getting into, that you want to pitch to, the more informed you are, the more you're ready to strike when the iron's hot, right? Mm. When you, you know, uh, it's weird because I know with, with live action, obviously you can go and meet people, right? If you go on socially and, and work on sets and anywhere you can get in to meet writers, right? is always a good thing. It never hurts. Right. Mm-hmm. So then you get that perfect opportunity. At some point you can get somebody your script. You yeah. Know? Well, and, uh, and certainly, um, I mean, networking with, uh, with animation writers, I'm sure would, would be a big one if, if you can, and also, uh, I mean, your example is getting a job at an animation company, whether you're the receptionist or, or yeah. <laughs> you know, the night janitor or whatever. Um, I'm sure that would be a great way to, great place to start anyway, or, or at least for the shows at that particular animation company. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to throw out another idea, which I think is actually has a lot of validity in terms of, uh, how to get in with animation in terms of the industry is that, in my experience, I haven't sold a show yet, right? My own creation of a show. I've, mm-hmm. I've worked on stuff that's been optioned, and there's some stuff in development a little bit that might happen. But from my experience as a writer doing development on shows that production companies have optioned, is the shows and some of the ideas they've optioned have been from complete, like, people who are new to the industry. Hmm. So I think it's really encouraging because it's one of these things where it's like, there's something about development people that, yeah, they always love to look at seasoned writer stuff, right? Or production companies or artists. Like, that's the thing. If you're an artist, if you have any artistic inclination, you're already ahead of the game because it's animation, right? Animation isn't just about the writing. It's about the visuals. Like, I could have the best animation script and you've got the worst artist working on it. Your show is going to be a complete failure. So I've worked on developing on some shows where they had a piece of art, <laughs> a production uh-huh. company has literally optioned a piece of art almost because it was just such a cool thing. Wow. And it's like there's sort of an idea maybe behind it, but it's not a show, right? So what do you do? You know, it happens a lot. Like it's if it's a short story or a, a kid's book, right? Like in preschool especially, it's like there's this lovely preschool kid's book, right? And it has gorgeous images and just a sweet little story that's probably five sentences long. <laughs> how, do you, how do you make a show out of something that's five sentences, right? You need a writer to do that. So, you know, if you really – artistically and animationly (laughs) i just make up a word animationally then you know coming up with your own show idea especially when it's like loaded with art and and some kind of your own designs and stuff like that if it can get the intention of a of a production company that's a definite in 
you know, it can be harder to even write on your own show if they option it because you might not have a track record, which is why I think you would need a spec script or something or a script with it to like be able to show, okay, I've got this great idea. Here's the pretty art that you've optioned it. And here's, here's the script that goes with it. Right. Mm. And if you can write on the show as well, if you've proven that you can write these animated scripts, it's like the double barrel, right? You've blasted your way in. And if the show actually gets greenlit, you're going to be attached somehow, if not as a head writer, then at least as a, a contributing writer rather than just uh, someone they option it from and then push you out of the picture right which happens too like if you know that's why you have to sort of be the more experienced you are in the scripting process i think the better your chances are of staying through the entire process mm-hmm. and uh, i should this is a total tangent total total aside but <laughs> i i did want to remind everybody that uh that uh dave was on the tv writer chat a few weeks ago and if you go to tvwriterchat.com um, you can look through the the older transcripts, and I I definitely recommend that you you do go through that transcript if you want to know more about this. There there are things that we covered in that chat that we won't necessarily cover here. Um, and uh, there was also animation writer Stephen Darren Set uh, as a guest on that chat. So do check that out, and um, and you will find a lot more in in specific. Uh, uh, Dave and Stephen talked about uh, the bigger budget. Um, primetime shows like Family Guy and how they're um, approached differently. Um, and there was some discussion about Canadian versus American writing. There was also some discussion about uh, pitching ideas and, and that kind of thing. So definitely check that out. Um, and also, uh, while I mentioned that, I should also mention, make sure you follow Dave on Twitter, at DSDave is your Twitter handle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty new to Twitter as a whole. Yeah. So I haven't posted a whole lot of stuff, but I'm hoping on being able to post a little more in the future you know it's it's uh it, i don't know animation is just a really interesting side of the business that maybe not that many people know about but it's it can be pretty robust at times so it's mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's definitely if you have any interest you know in animation it's definitely good to, to look into yeah now speaking about robust this might be a loose <laughs> a loose segue <laughs> in scripted you you start at a certain level you make a certain amount and within a couple of years you could be doubling that amount and within another couple of years you could be doubling that amount and and within i mean there there are 30 year olds not a lot of them but there are 30 year olds making a million dollars a year um mm-hmm. animation there's money in it but it's approached totally differently tell me about that oh, okay you know what my canadian experience might be vastly different from uh, the american experience with animation because the animation in the states literally is not covered by the guild at all and in the canada it is it's just there's less that's covered by the guild oh i see Um, so things like productions becoming signatory to the writers guild in canada is there but there's no script fee minimum it's something that we're trying to work on because it's been a long time coming but yeah the script fees are lower in animation even uh you know in stable animation marketplaces, it's lower. And where that comes from, again, I don't know the entire history. I just know that uh, the rates haven't gone up in, <laughs> in the 13 years I've been doing it. So a lot of times for experienced writers, it becomes about volume. Mm. You know, it's like, how many scripts can I write? And, uh, you know, I'm sure for all of us, it can get to the point where it's like, you don't want to say no to things, but if it's, if it's too many things start popping up, you literally have to start saying, I can't possibly do all of this or I'm going to start handing in some subpar work. Hmm. But in terms of like for head writers and like story editors and, and creative producers and stuff like that, when you're like the head writer, you know, on a show, those rates are m- more negotiable. Like there's sort of unwritten minimums for other series, like as a freelancer. Right. Mm-hmm. But as a as a head writer, the, the, the fee scale 
varies widely and it all depends on what you can negotiate you know mm. what i mean like it's it's what's your rate how successful was your last show you know that kind of thing and it's it can go up from there to very large amounts depending on what the what the production is the show but for the average you know animation writer who's sort of making a living out there like it's it can be lucrative but it's just it's not like the same as live action at least in the states for sure where it's like you're right you get a 30 year old making a million dollars or or uh, even entry level writers are still making like a quarter million i think right like you're starting up in that sort of ballpark so and that's often just to be in the room you mm-hmm. know you're not even guaranteed scripts like which are which pay you know on top of that but they value the room you know the, the room is where all the magic happens and then you get the head writers filtering out through, with the scripting process you know um with animation it just doesn't exist that way it's like there's there's less budget for writers and less budget per script so I can't speak for uh, writers because I've never worked in the big live action venue. So I know that it pays less, but it still pays fairly decently, at least, you know, if you can write enough. Uh, from a freelance perspective, if you're just writing one or two, it's not going to change your life financially. Hmm. Um, but it's interesting. You work on a show that's a big enough profile show and it can get you other shows, you know, definitely. And you know what? If you create a show, if you get to that point where you're the head writer and you're creating a show, it does sort of changing your life financially. Maybe not like a quarter million dollars or a half million dollars financially. But, you know, if you start having a royalty stake in a show you've created, it can mean it can mean a lot hmm. you know, down, down the road. And uh, whatever you negotiate, if you're a head writer and you negotiate your one show and it becomes a hit or you you do really well on it, then your next show, obviously, you'll probably make more and and it goes from there. But uh, it just gets tough because there are productions out there because there's no minimums that, you know, you get offered something or a show comes in and it's like less than what you've made 13 years ago on a show. Wow. You know, in terms of per script. And so you're like, wow, or is this is this really what it is? And the reality is a lot of production companies, animation is generally cheaper to do. So it means that there's more people that are doing it, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Because they can. If, wow, I can now afford as a producer to make this show. But a lot of times if, you know, if they start cutting like the writing budget back and shaving it back, it gets tricky. Like who are you going to hire on it? You know, it's, yeah. it's become the question of is you're probably going to hire more new writers because more experienced writers are going to go work on things that maybe pay better. Mm. Yeah. And, and and to be clear, we're, we're not really talking about the primetime shows like Family Guy no. or or, oh, no, or no. Seinfeld. Those those really are, as far as I understand, approached just like sitcom writing. As a matter of fact, there if you were to just walk in the room, it would look like a sitcom staff. I would think so, yeah. They do. In fact, I are some of those actually covered by the guild? I'm I'm know? pretty sure they are. I'm pretty sure yeah. the primetime animation uh, in that category is uh, is run just like sitcom writing, which would mean that you'd have to have a great sitcom spec to get in. Um, and all the rules of, of sitcom writing would apply to that. But it, we're, we're sort of not talking about that sphere right now. Um, and as you describe that process of what you negotiate, obviously that's where your agent is going to be very important. Um, so it might be a good opportunity to talk about, you know, you've been with Jennifer Hollier. Um, yep. and you've, and uh, you've been with her all along. No, I was, um, I've been here with her for about three years now. Mm-hmm. I was with another agent who, uh, left the business oh, okay. <laughs> at, at 35 or whatever it was. He just, it wasn't for him. He just wanted to become a teacher and he left. So it uh, gave me a chance to shop around and, uh, and Jenny was great and she's been, she's been fantastic, mm-hmm. uh, but it does help. It does, you know, even though I have a lot of, I have a lot of animation contacts that I've worked in a lot of different companies and stuff like that, but I still find it's fantastic to have an agent if it's, you know, because, there's aspects of deals that because there's no writer's guild, like there's there's some writer's guild 
uh, stuff that's covered, but because there's no minimums and stuff, you have the potential of getting gouged if you're not careful and you don't know what kind of language you're looking at in your contracts. And just knowing what the lay of the land is in terms of like being able to negotiate that kind of thing, it's uh, it's definitely a good a good idea. But the other aspect I was going to mention when it comes to fees being lower, I guess the silver lining of like a show that has a, a smaller script fee is that there is potentially an opportunity for newer writers to get jobs on that mm. because you know other experienced writers if they say no and they pass it somebody has to write that stuff right and less of a risk yeah less of a risk yeah but ultimately usually what happens is that an experienced writer will probably just cut their rate a little bit especially if they're offered a deal where they get to write uh, a bulk of episodes right and maybe 10 or something like that it's like okay well you make like a grand less per script but you get like 10 of them instead so who in the right mind would say no to that if mm. it's something that they want to do or that they would could use the money for right so but it would just be better as a whole if there was minimums then you wouldn't get into those kind of like situations it can be awkward or, or difficult but again animation is just a it's it's you know i love writing in it but oftentimes in the production world it is treated as like like regular you know daytime animation kids animation stuff like that is treated like a second class citizen in the mm. writing world and it's it's a shame because there's some really clever writers working out there doing some pretty amazing stuff because you have to be the really good stuff is highly imaginative like you know you can go out there way out there if you really want to take it there and it, can, it has to be funny and visual visual in a way that sitcoms can never be because they just can't go to certain places so, um, you know, it really deserves more respect in that regard, but mm -hmm. uh, I'm biased. <laughs> yeah. Now, now let's say, let's talk a little bit more about, um, about, uh, people breaking in, but also people pitching and, and somebody who might have their own ideas, uh, for stuff. You, you've said that, um, you said on the TV writer chat that it can be hard to get sample scripts, of especially the, the, the children's shows. Um, so how would somebody learn the format to even be able to have a, a decent spec? That's a really good question, Greg, because it's, it's it's not being able to find samples out there makes it really difficult. I was kind of surprised by what animation scripts looked like when I first saw them because, A, I never – they were just buried in the back of these binders at – the animation company working with you know there's a storyboard and there's some scripts right and the scripts just look denser than i was used to seeing for feature scripts so it's like why is that what's you know what is that and now it's like the closest thing you can often get to finding an animated script online is like a, a simpsons or a family guy out there you know uh south park i think you can find out there but a regular like can you find a door the explorer script you know can you find a phineas and ferb script out there i don't know but they're just as crucial to, to find because, you know, especially something like a Phineas and Ferb, like it's like animation companies all want like a big gigantic hit like that. Right. And I guess it's cyclical. It's just like every every few years. It's like a few years ago would be we want a SpongeBob SquarePants. Right now that show's gone on forever. It makes even more money. But right now it's like Phineas and Ferb is a gigantic property for Disney. And um, every animation company wants to have something a lot like it. So it'd be great to actually have a sample of one of those scripts to see what it looks like. Hmm. But in lieu of that, you just have to look at the show. It's really just involves with really watching the show and realizing that a lot of kids shows have a very distinct formula to them. And I formula is a loaded term because formula, you, you know, in terms of the adult writing world, you think of formula as predictable, boring, juvenile, whatever, right? But formula just means it's like the template for the show. 
it's uh you know law and order template is you start with that guy's voice you know going da 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 dong dong and like every time you cut away you've got a little text saying where you are what the date is and time and stuff like that that's part of that show's template and structure and animated shows are are no different so and the more kid like it is especially the younger you go down the more of a template it is and in fact stuff like reuse you know you watch uh Dora the Explorer right like I keep bringing that show up because it's a gigantic monster hit that's like mm-hmm. a billion dollar industry for Nickelodeon you know, you watch that show and it's like there's always segments when they're singing and traveling, you know, her backpack song. It's like it's in every single episode. So it has to be there. It's going to be there in your script. It's you have to account for that in your script length. You can't go too long because, oh, well, there's this song, this song, this song. We always have to have hmm. young kids like repetition. Right. So it's not there just for being cheap. It's <laughs> it helps <laughs> when you have to regular template segments that you have to to show all the time. But kids it's there because kids like it as well so the older you get the more the template is going to be different or unique or whatever it is and having that script it was crucial to see but if you can't see it then at least you have to watch that show and know intimately what makes that structure unique to that Mm. show so i'm convinced that if you watch a show enough you can pretty much mimic what that structure is you may not know the exact wording of how you you know, it wouldn't look identical to a sample script. But if you watch a million hours of Dora, you could pretty much write a script and wing it to know what what structure points to put in and stuff so that somebody would read it and say, wow, this person knows that show intimately, mm. even though they even though they never saw what the actual script looked like, it would be pretty darn close. Right. So. Yeah, so I, I wouldn't suggest that anybody get, you know, upset or downtrodden by not being able to find more like Saturday morning or Cartoon Network type scripts out there. You know, you just watch a show enough and you know how to write a normal script. Just just write it that way with that show's leanings in, in mind. Hmm, cool. Yeah, great advice. And um, and so let's talk about a, a little bit about pitching shows. Um, something that you mentioned uh, there was a long discussion on the TV writer chat about uh, how when you when you pitch a show you've got to have art. What does that art look like? And um, and people talked about do you need to know how to draw? And you made a point um, that bad art is not going to sell your your show. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> that's, that's very very true. It's, you know, it's funny because I've actually just started uh, teaching a class in animation writing. It's just a local college up here. That's It's just a night course for mm-hmm. adults. And I'm filling in for someone that uh, had to drop out at the last minute. So it's only 12 weeks, but it's all about Bible writing and pilot script writing. And so I came across the same issue where I'm talking about saying, do you put art or not? Because I'm literally looking at samples of stuff and it's like, every almost every bible i've got for a show has some kind of art in it and if it doesn't have art in it it's usually because it's a writer's bible so the show's already been sold and now it's just information for writers right, mm. to, to, to know so the reality is that if you've got art in it it's going to sell much much easier than it would if it didn't like your writing skills have to be incredible to write uh, a non-art package and, and still get sold and it, it does happen and if the idea is good enough and it's written clearly and succinctly enough it can still sell just your odds you're you're helping your odds better by uh by having some kind of art but bad art is like you know it's hard to say because if you're not an animator what constitutes bad art mm-hmm. and you, you know all you can do is go with your own gut instincts and you know, you can look at a few different aspects of it, right? Where I love there's somebody's quote about the Simpsons, right? Is that if you look at the Simpsons characters in silhouette, you know immediately who they are, 
right? Because they're that well designed as characters. So immediately, you know, Bart is Bart because of his spiky hairdo, right? You know, mm-hmm. Homer's Homer because he's got the three hairs on his bald head and he's got the big paunch, you know, Marge, of course, her hair is going to give her away easily. So cartoon characters need to be that stark and identifiable as characters hmm. and not just as themselves, but in context with the show, with everybody else, you know, the, and the more visual it is, the better. It's If it's a really cartoony, cartoony show, it's got to be way out there in terms of the art. So it's another thing that I guess you really have to know your, your animated shows or at least do some research to say, well, what's the style? Like what style would best suit this? It's not just enough to draw some pretty images. It's like, do you want King of the Hill type art, which is almost like yeah, very realistic. That's about one of the most realistic cartoons out there, right? Mm. Everybody kind of looked like real people, you know? Uh, or do you want to go out there and you're going to make uh, Aqua Teen Hunger Force where the main characters are like fries and a shake and a meatball, <laughs> right? It's like whatever they are. It's just that it's – and how, you know, how crazy looking are they going to be? So I'm going off on a tangent with this stuff. But it's if it's really it – you can't just throw in any art and expect it to be good. You really need some – I would get some kind of opinion from an artist or somebody maybe that works in TV or just something to look at and say, wow, is this – because amateur drawings are going I saw a Bible for a show that I actually wouldn't mind it working on in terms of development. And it was a it was a company that was looking for a development deal. And they had a seed of a decent show, but the art that they had attached to it was just subpar. And it was mm. just like – it was like somebody – had drawn some stuff and it was really it was kind of cute and sweet but it was just like you could just tell it just didn't look professional and that's the one thing good art can help you sell it but bad art well as i said we'll just you know sink it so i said this is this show is better without that art hmm. and and you mentioned a great idea on the on the chat about hiring an artist um making them an equal co-creator tell me about that well, I haven't done this myself, but I know of other writers who have done that because it's, you know, we often find ourselves in the same position. We've worked really, really hard over X number of months or years even potentially on an idea and uh, we want to make sure we sell this thing, right? And sometimes we haven't and and you're like, wow, you know, I guess I really need to get some art a- attached to this. So what do you do, you know? And at least one writer friend of mine has said, look, you know, I need art. I can't draw with anything and uh, I can't afford money up front. You know, you, you it's a big investment to pay somebody up front to, to put art on something that may result in no sale for you. You know, mm. if you've got a lot of you know cash sitting around, then why not? Like it's, you could probably get some good art for a few hundred dollars from somebody. Right. Uh, but again, it's like artists need to be treated with respect too. Right. So it's like, you can't just throw $50 at a guy and expect to get tons and tons of art from someone and be able to exploit it in perpetuity forever. You, mm. you know, that's why I think it's like, if the art is as important towards getting your idea sold, then I, you know, my friend's ideas just I, I make them a partner created by myself and artist, right? Mm. Because a created by credit is a created by credit, right? Like you could be involved with the show later. You may just be, that's where it ends, right? And you'll see royalty checks if the thing gets made, like episodes, you know, however many episodes they make, you get an X number of royalty dollars and they get sent to you. So, um, you know, if you're a script writer and you created it, like the text and stuff like that, there might be a better chance of you getting staying with the show later on but the artist would be i would think be pretty happy to say look you know if especially if they're not an experienced animation artist like real animation artists want to be with the show it's their creation right Mm -hmm. but if they're not with a a company already or if it's sold to another company like it just may not be possible for them to stay on through the whole thing it's it's it starts getting into legal areas that are kind of gray right so you know it's best if again if you get a lawyer or something to get like a contract with an artist too because you just don't want to I guess you can have a handshake agreement, but I wouldn't suggest it. Hmm. Like Good I point. Haven't, I've, I haven't hired an artist myself, but I just think it's like if you're going to create a show with somebody, 
do all writers have contracts with each other to say, let's, we're going to spit this 50, 50, no matter what they probably should, mm-hmm. but how often do they, I don't know. So it's probably the same thing with an artist, right? It's like, it could be a gentleman's agreement or just like a little document that you sign between yourselves. Like, I don't know. I would probably hire a lawyer every time, but again, how badly do you want to sell your idea? How badly do you want to get art attached to it? I'm sure there's a lot of artists that would be love, love the chance to say, look, I'm, I'm creating something on spec here for somebody, uh, but they're doing it on spec too. Like we're going in as partners to try and, and sell this thing. And they can, at the very least, they can add it to their uh, their portfolio, you know? Cool. Well, actually, we're, we're getting close to the end here. And, and uh, I'm sorry, we haven't really talked a lot about the, sh- the in particular, the shows that you've worked on, but I, I thought it, it was a great opportunity to just talk about generalities of the, of the industry. And uh, yeah. are there any shows that you you feel like would be helpful to bring up? Um, I know you worked on Doodlebops, you worked on Franklin, Caillou, Max and Ruby. Um, yeah, those are the preschool kids shows. I mean, the thing about preschool is that there's a lot of work as a whole because most networks have a preschool block of some kind, right? Not all networks have a teen block, you know, or an adult block or uh, whatever. But uh, so there's just generally more of those kind of shows going on. And they're incredibly hard to write for. So if anyone out there thinks that preschool kids, ah, oh, be a cakewalk, it's, there's a lot more restrictions to them. They can be very, very difficult. But at the same time, they can often be the most evergreen. That's a phrase I've heard many times in terms of a show being like they can sell it and show it in multiple markets around the world for decades. And you can't tell like it's, you know, the original Care Bears, I think, is still being shown in various places. They've done more versions, but the property as a whole just keeps going on and on and on, you know, even stuff like Franklin, like they're doing another season. It's just 3D and same with Babar and all these old shows. But as an adult to me, I love to do older stuff, too. Like the, the boys action adventure stuff seems to be my leaning. Like I just I don't know. Because I think of myself as an eight-year-old kid watching all this great stuff, and mm. you're like, you're creating it, right? It's like, what's the coolest? I have said this a couple times when I'm writing on a boys' action adventure show. It's like, what's the coolest thing I could see right now happening? Uh-huh. And, you, and you concoct it, right? As long as it makes a logical sense that it happens, it's just out of the blue. It's like, wow. And then you see it animated, you're just like, that's awesome. <laughs> you know, it's like your eight-year-old has uh, jumped into the an adult's body and made this thing happen as an artist, which I I just love. Yeah. But Boys Action Adventure is kind of like in a in a bit of a doldrums right now in terms of like popularity of genres. Like I've, I've worked on a show called Redakai, which is on Cartoon Network, and it's a big, big deal in terms of like a property. It's like you know all these creature shows and stuff like that, like uh, like or Beyblade or any of these anime shows. It's like it's sort of staking out that market where there's a whole toy line that's attached to these cards and stuff like that. Hmm. But uh, it has some pretty cool stuff in the show in terms of like battles and explosions and all this kind of stuff. So it's like. You know, it's appropriate for that age group. I wouldn't show younger kids it, but man, you know, the thrilling, visceral action stuff is like, I love it. Yeah. Well, and, and that brings up a, another point that you did mention in the chat as well. It, it should go without saying that if you want to write for animation, that you got to watch a lot of it. Yeah, you know what? It really does. It's like what I've sort of learned, not just with animation, just it's pretty much any kind of writing is like if you don't have your heart completely in it, it shows up on the page, right? It's a cliche. But I think with animation, it might happen even more frequently because a lot of people do look down on it. It's like, oh, it's animation. It's for cartoons. It's for kids. Kids are idiots. They're not going to know what we're, what they're watching here. And they don't give it the full respect it deserves. And it shows up in your writing. And the people that work in animation take it very, very seriously. You know, They want to see quality put behind this stuff. Even if it's a very insular universe that the show is, it has to be the best examples of that universe that you can put on paper. Hmm. So, I mean, that's you've got to know it inside and out. You can't just watch one episode of something and think you know. you got to really, really get into it. 
I think a lot of people, especially in preschool, can be tough to get into it as adults because you just don't watch a lot of it unless you have kids. But if you're a professional, you sit down, you watch it, you learn what it is that you love about that show and you have to write to that. You know, working on Ovan in some ways was the best thing that ever happened because I worked on a bunch of shows that I loved and I worked on some shows that I really did not love. Hmm. <laughs> but yet I had to I had to make a quota for a certain number of scripts for the year. I had to write on some shows. That's all they had going on that month. So it's like, how do I how do I come up with something for a show that I may not necessarily want to watch? And you find the aspect of it that you love and you write to that. Hmm. And and then when you see the finished product, you're like, wow, I transcended something that I on first glance might not have liked and turned it into something that I wanted to watch. And that to me is the mark of a professional writer in almost any genre. Well, I think that actually is a wonderful place to end up. Um, I think that's probably a great lesson for, for any staff writer, uh, you know, scripted animation or not. Um, is, uh, it, we're all going to be in a situation like that if we want to get into the industry where we get a job on something. It's not necessarily our dream show. And, uh, and so, um, very, very good, uh, advice right to what you do love about that show. Yeah. But, um, is, is there anything before we wrap up that you would want to, to talk about in general? No, no, it's just, it's, it's, uh, animation is kind of changing as a market. It's, it's, uh, there's so much of it out there and there's a lot of preponderance of young kids like live action tween shows on US networks and Canadian networks that animation's kind of dropped off a little bit in terms of the amount of productions going on but some of the stuff they're doing is really fascinating like some hybrid productions you know like uh, I'm developing a show with a company called Marvel Media right now for CBC and they're I think they're selling a MIP right now but a preschool kids show called Chugga Chugga Wow and it's all about kids uh, it's like it's animation but it has live action kids in it right mm-hmm. so it's that kind of thing like you know you you have the reality of like real kids acting like real kids but you've got the fantastical aspect of animation to put it in and it's pretty amazing they're doing just some incredible stuff with animation you know it's almost like the reverse of a uh, motion capture right it's just like you're putting real kids you keep them as real kids but you put them in this cartoon universe mm. and uh you get to see some pretty amazing fun stuff so as a genre it's going to some pretty exciting places very, very cool. And uh, and so, reminder again, you can follow Dave on Twitter, at DSDave. And uh, I want to thank you so much for being with us. And um, best of luck to you in all of your animated stuff. Thank you, Greg. Thanks for having me on. Uh, cool. Okay, thanks, Dave. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web. And by Final Draft Script Writing Software, the entertainment industry standard for script writing worldwide. <laughs>